Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Ephesians chapter 4. We've come to that portion of Paul's uh, book here that focuses on how we put into practice the things that he had taught that we have already received, all the great blessings, being made alive in Messiah, being ones that are already seated in heavenly places, being in this new entity where Jews and non-Jews are brought together as one new thing that God is doing in the world where we come together to worship him and give him praise. As such, then, how are we to live out our lives here reflecting those truths. Paul begins in chapter 4, verse 1, by telling us we are to live a life worthy of the calling we have received. And so what does such a life look like? What is a worthy life? And we saw that this word worthy means like equal in nature, equal to the blessings God has given to us, equally so our lives are to reflect them both within our character and with regard to our actions. And so Paul is telling us at the front end, with regard to our character, we need to be ones, and Dan spoke about this earlier, we need to be ones who reflect humility. We need to be ones who manifest gentleness. We need to be ones who are patient, with one another. We need to be ones who bear with one another. We need to be ones who love one another. We need to be ones, in verse 3, who make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit that He has already manifested and provided for us in our midst. We need to be ones who manifest love one to the other. That's what's to go on internally. That's what's to affect our character. And then it is to be lived out in demonstration to one another. Paul then talks about the necessity for unity. Over and over, he makes this statement beginning in verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity. He says there is one body. There is one spirit. We were called to one hope. We have one Lord. We have one faith. We have one immersion. We have one God. We have one Father who is of all, who is over all, through all, and in all of us who have embraced Yeshua as his, as our Messiah and Savior. When we get to verse 7, where we're going to pick up, he now speaks about the distinctions within this one body. While we are one body to manifest the kind of characteristics he's already described, nevertheless, there are diversities within this body. There are distinctions. Not everything is exactly the same. So beginning at verse 7, he says, But to each one of us grace has been given, as Messiah has apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and he gave gifts to men. Paul is making reference to Psalm 68. We'll look at that in a moment. What does he ascend in Psalm 68 mean? Except that he also must have descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some 
to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Messiah may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith, in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of God. This is the section which Paul speaks about the gifts of the Spirit, but it's in a particular context. He isn't just speaking about the gifts of the Spirit as gifts as such, but rather what their function is and what their purpose is. Their purpose is to lead to the unity of the body. The purpose is to lead to us becoming mature in the Lord, grown up in him. No longer, as Paul says, feeding merely on the milk of the word, concerned with the elementary matters of life, but rather feasting on the meat, meteor things of the word and integrating our faith and our life where the more difficult aspects of experiences come in. We are to become mature in our walk with the Lord. And that is what characterizes what Paul says, a walking worthy of our Messiah. Seeking to grow more and more deeply in our understanding of God's word and more and more faithfully in living out its truths day by day, moment by moment. How are we to do that? It's interesting, Paul says, we cannot do it in isolation. We must do it and only can achieve it in the context of community. That's why he said we are one body. Yet there are distinctions in the body. We are not all the same. We have differences. But nevertheless, we are to grow up in Messiah as one body in him. Now, when we look at these passages on the gifts of the Spirit, Paul's going to make reference to 4 or 5 in this passage. But in this passage, they are not just gifts. They are people. He's given us apostles, not merely the gift of apostleship. He's given us prophets, not merely the gift of prophesying. He's given us pastors and teachers, not merely the gift of pastoring and teaching. He's given us the gift of evangelists, not merely the gift of evangelism. In other words, here, Paul is focusing on people because we make up the one body of Messiah. The gifts are that which enable people to serve as God would have us to serve. If the body is to grow, which is another way of saying, if we are to grow, then it is a necessity that we understand the gifts God has entrusted to us and that we use them in a coordinated fashion with one another. Now, Paul likens believers gathered together as a body. Earlier, he spoke of us as a kingdom. He told us we were citizens of God's kingdom. He spoke of us as a building. He said we are a temple. He uses all kinds of images to speak about the believers gathered together that suit his purpose. Here, he speaks of us as a body made up of different parts, yet belonging to the same body. Now, Paul could have said, we are a machine, because machines are made up of different parts as well. But a machine is not like a body. The way that a machine grows is by adding parts to it. The way that a machine grows is by keeping the parts in well-oiled working condition. But that's not how a body grows. How does a body grow? First of all, it grows in accordance with its DNA. So I remember as a young person, as we all have, that we've had teachers that have told us we can do anything we want if we just put our minds to it. Work hard, study hard, practice hard. You can be and do anything. But that really is not true, is it? I wanted to be in the NBA. And no matter how hard I worked at jumping, I can't and never could dunk. 
Now, I know there have been five, seven Spud Webb guys that have been able to do that. I don't get that. But they are rarities. My DNA would not permit me to play in the NBA. My DNA, and I used to lift weights on a fairly regular basis, and there was that goal, if only I can press 575 pounds. My DNA would not allow it. I remember when I was working out, and there was a fellow who was around 6'2 or so, but it wasn't very bulky. And there he was. He had one of these, like, rubber ball things, you know, behind the shoulder blades. And he's back there like this with his shoulder blades up, his legs on the ground, perfect parallel. And he had these two dumbbells of about 85 pounds a piece. And he's doing these flies like this. And I'm wondering, how is this guy doing that? He doesn't even look that big. And I got to talking with him, and he was one of these crew members on one of those uh, boats that sail around the world. You know, those, uh, they're huge yachts, and they have crews on them. And he was the crew member that would go up the mast when they would need to trim the head sail to come around in the ocean, whatever. They don't just pull lines like normal people do. They send a guy up the mast to make sure that the sail is configured just perfectly and very quickly, and therefore he had to be really strong, especially his upper body strength. But he couldn't be bulky because he had to be thin enough in order to get up the mast, which are 100, 150 feet up off of the deck of the ship and in these crazy ways. And he'd be up there and down, up and down. And he was the strongest guy, although he didn't look like he would be able to do that. But my DNA would not permit me to do that either. <laughs> it has nothing to do with me. It's all DNA. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, we are limited by our DNA in many respects. Similarly, the body of Messiah, our local expression, is limited by the sovereign grace and DNA that God has factored in to Beth Ariel. We will not be what God does not want us to be. We will be what he intends for us to be. And so it's incumbent upon us to recognize what it is we are, what it is that God has enabled us to be, what kind of resources God has entrusted to us, and thus to use them as such, and not wishing we were something other than what God has already made us and intended for us to be. Bodies grow by the DNA with which we have been created. Bodies grow by eating well. I cannot say I know a lot about eating well and dieting, But we all know that if we eat well, our bodies will be healthier, our bodies will be stronger, hopefully they will be trimmer, and they will be ready to endure the physical needs that are needed to be encountered in our world. Similarly, the body of Messiah will grow if we eat well. It is not enough merely to feast on the word of God that we enjoy, like candy. It is not enough to merely ingest those portions of God's word that come to us easily, like fast food. We can feast on some of that sometime, but sometimes you need stuff that doesn't taste so well, but has all the vitamins. We need to face the word of God in its entirety and to seek to understand it as completely and fully as we can, and to live it out as painfully as it might be on occasion if we expect to be healthy. Because bodies grow by eating well and full course meals. Bodies grow and get strong by exercise. Now, as much as I enjoy relaxing, and yesterday was a really relaxing time at the beach, sitting around talking, getting thrown around by the waves, and just enjoying one another. There's a necessity to serve. There's a necessity to act and to get physical about our faith. There is a need for us to share our faith with others who do not know the Lord. As hard as that might be to lift those weights up, that challenge us to share our faith, to listen to others, to interact with others, and to be convincing with others about our faith, 
We need to do that if we want to be healthy. We need to love one another when it is really hard to love one another. We need to be patient with one another when it is really hard to endure what others throw our way. But service, exercise, is critical to the body being a healthy body, the body growing. We get fat when we sit in pews time and time again and ingest all that's coming our way without then turning around and saying, how do I give this stuff out? What do I do with this? How do I make it effective in our world? For the benefit of others, which ultimately will be for the benefit of ourselves. So how does a body grow? It grows in accordance with what God's intentions are for us. It grows in accordance with how well we eat. It grows in accordance with how well we exercise. And it grows in accordance with how well we rest. Many think that we can just serve and serve and serve and serve and we won't get tired or we won't get burned out or we won't lose our creativity or we won't lose our real uh, sense of what might need to be done. We can become complacent and comfortable with what is and therefore not take risks, not make changes and try new things. If we don't rest, step aside for a time, put some things down, can be very exhausting indeed. So when Paul likens the, the believers gathered together as a body, he's very deliberate about that. And he's telling us that we must grow. And to grow, we must understand what God has for us. We must ingest his word. We must exercise his word, do his word. And we must also have time for rest, worship, praise, receiving, and putting things down for a time. Now, Paul tells us in chapter 4, each of us grace has been given. I love what Paul says here. He doesn't say each of us has received a gift, but he rather says we all have received grace of God. The fullness of grace that brings salvation, but now the grace of God that will enable us to grow as a body in service to him and to one another. And notice that the grace he's given is apportioned as Messiah has given it out. That means that what he's about to tell us with regard to this grace, which will be these gifted individuals that are given to the body, is to be for the purpose of glorifying our Lord. It's given out by him and it's apportioned by him. Therefore, we have to be very much concerned that what we do is ultimately for the glory of God, that it draws attention to him, not ourselves or even our ministry. We must lift up the name of Messiah. And I remember what Yeshua said. If he is lifted up, he'll draw all men unto himself. It is he that must be preeminent and must be acknowledged in all that we do. So what is it that we are to do? Look what Paul says in verse 8. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. Now check this out in Psalm 68. This is what Paul is making reference to. And this is one of the most difficult passages, I think, in all of God's word. There are a number of passages that are really difficult to understand. First Peter is one, and uh, this is another. Psalm 68. Very, very strange in many regards. The psalm is a psalm about the glorification of the Lord. The psalm is about the triumph of God, how he triumphs over his enemies and then is exalted above all. So in the first verse, he says, may God arise, and here is his triumph over his enemies. May his, flows, his foes flee before him. As smoke is blown away by the wind, may you blow them away, that God would just scatter and disperse those that would oppose him. 
But verse 3, may the righteous be glad and rejoice before God and that they be happy and joyful in the destruction of the enemies of God. For the enemies of God are also the enemies of God's people. He goes on to say, sing to the Lord. Give praise and glory to his name. Extol him, the one who rides above the clouds. And this is what he does. Not only does he triumph over his enemies, but he's like a father. This is really strange. All of a sudden he switches from this conquering warrior to being a caring, compassionate father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. So there's a sense in which as God comes as judge, but there's a sense in which God is our savior, embraces us, loves us, provides for us. That's why Messiah came. He came in order that we might experience the fullness of the love that God has. He sets the lonely in families. Those without families, those children without families, he places in homes. He, re, he releases the prisoners, and he does so with great singing. But the rebellious, they will live in a scorched land. Verse 7, when you went out before your people, O God. Now that's the question. When did he go out before his people? Is this the leading of the people out of Egypt through the wilderness, perhaps? When you marched through the wasteland. Notice he says, the earth shook, the heavens poured down rain. Perhaps the reference is to Moses providing water from rocks, the manna that came down from heaven. But he says, before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. But he brings them into the land of promise and provides them with abundant showers. You refresh the weary. Do these showers look forward to the Spirit of God poured out among men to to nurture us and refresh us spiritually? Your people settled in it, and from your bounty, O God, you provided for the poor. The Lord announced the word, and great was the company of those who proclaimed it. Is this the proclamation of his law? Kings and armies flee in haste back to the war issues, back to the war imagery. In the camps, men divide the plunder. Even while you sleep among the campfires, the wings of my dove are sheathed with silver, its feathers shining gold. I have no idea what he's saying. Verse 14, when the Almighty scattered the kings in the land, it was like snow fallen on Zalman, just covers it all. And God scatters all the people. He says, the mountains of Bashan, Bashan is the Golan Heights, the mountains of Bashan are majestic, but that's not where God settled his presence. So why, in verse 16, gaze in envy, O rugged mountains, at the mountain where God chooses to reign, Mount Mount Zion, the Temple Mount, where the Lord himself will dwell forever? Is that what's going on here? It's hard to be certain. The chariots of God, now we're back to the warring, conquering king. The chariots of God are tens of thousands and thousands of thousands. The Lord has come from Sinai into his sanctuary, coming from the giving of the law at Mount Sinai into his sanctuary on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And here's the passage Paul makes reference to. When you ascended on high, you led captives in your train. You received gifts from men, even from the rebellious, that you, O Lord, might dwell there. What does he mean? Does he mean when you ascended on high onto Mount Zion, Mount Zion into the temple and dwelt in the temple, the Shekinah glory? Or does he mean on high in the heavens as he ascends onto his heavenly throne? And you led captives in your train. Who are these captives? Are they the bad guys that, like a a conquering king, would take the captives in and they would be forced to worship that king or acknowledge the victory king as the victor? It's hard to say what is truly meant here. You led captives in your train. And then it says you received gifts from them, from the rebellious that you, O Lord, might dwell there, be honored there, be glorified there. This is really difficult to understand completely. 
In verse 19, it gets a little simpler. Praise be to the Lord, to God our Savior, who daily bears our burdens. That's understandable. Our God is a God who saves. From the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. Surely God will crush the enemies. Now turn in Psalm 68 and look at the end. It's such a fantastic passage. Sing to God, O kingdoms of the earth. Sing praise to the Lord, to him who rides the ancient skies, who thunders with mighty voice. Proclaim the power of God, whose majesty is over Israel, whose power is in the skies. You are awesome, O God, in your sanctuary. The God of Israel, here it is, gives power and strength to his people. Now look back at Ephesians chapter 4, and you can see why this is challenging. Because in Psalm 68, he said, when God ascended, he led captives and he received gifts. But look what Paul does. When God ascended, he led captives, but look how he changed it. He gave gifts to men. In Psalm 68, God is receiving gifts. In Paul's reflection of that Psalm, he's giving gifts. So what's going on here? I don't know if we could say with great certainty. But I think what Paul is doing is giving us the sense of Psalm 68, which is a triumphant psalm of the glory of God as the victor, as our king. In fact, I didn't read the passage, but if you look later in Psalm 68, he's hailed as king. But what Paul does is he says this is true of Messiah. Look at verse 7. But to each of us, grace has been given as Messiah apportioned it. As it says, when he, Messiah, ascended on high. Psalm 68, it's God who ascends on high. For Paul, the God who ascends on high in Psalm 68 is none other than the Messiah of Israel, who ascends on high as well. From the psalm, we would think that his ascending on high is ascending from Mount Zion, excuse me, Sinai to Mount Zion, which actually is lower in elevation. But it's an ascending because it's on the temple mount of Mount Zion that is t- the temple will be built and his glory will be displayed and his worship will occur. But for Paul, the ascension is the ascension of Messiah to the right hand of the Father, as we read in Acts chapter 1. So what Paul seems to be doing is what's happening in Psalm 68 refers to God and it's like a type, it's a foretaste of what will be true with regard to Messiah, who is God, with regard to what happens when he becomes a man in our midst and then fulfills all of the messianic expectations and and a conclusion to his messianic expectations ascends to the very right hand of the Father. And when God ascends, we give gifts to him. When Messiah ascends, whatever gifts were given to him, God, Messiah goes the second route and then dispenses gifts to us. Gifts that are apportioned by him and gifts that are a reflection of his glory and honor. What this means is it is so necessary for us to exercise our gifts because they're the gifts of Messiah in his glory. They're not just random gifts. These are very particular things that Messiah has bestowed upon us as a result of his exaltation to the right hand of the Father. I don't think I ever thought of the gifts God has entrusted to me that way. I've basically thought, what a nice thing to have this gift. And I pray God will enable me to use it. But that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying these gifts are the result of his exaltation. In other words, Messiah does not squander his gifts. He gives them out to be used responsibly. It means that Messiah does does not just hand them out in any particular manner. He does so with specific intentionality. So for us to say, I'm not sure what my gift is, is an affront to the very exaltation of our Lord. For us to know our gifts and not to use them means that we don't understand 
the fullness of what Messiah has done and more importantly, who he is. Because he is the God who is exalted in Psalm 68, who gives gifts to men, receives gifts, and is on the highest of mountains. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians 4, look at this, verse 9. What does it mean that he ascended? What Paul is saying is, in order for Messiah to ascend, he must ascend from one place to another. And to ascend means he must ascend to a high place which means he must have been at a low place. So what's the low place that he's been at? This is what Paul says. He who descended, excuse me, it means that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. So in order for him to ascend, he can't be ascended. He has to somehow have been descended. He has to come down in order to go up, is what Paul is saying. Our, ch- our challenge is, what does that mean? <laughs> and there are various interpretations. My understanding is, Paul is talking about his becoming a human being. He descended by virtue of his birth to Miriam. He descended to the lowest place he could possibly descend to, to become like the creation he has made. Think of that. The creator descended to become a creation, in a sense. The descent, the creator took on humanity and became like us. And having completed the work of redemption, he ascends into the very presence of God. And because of his completed work, look what Paul says, he ascended higher than all the heavens. That means he's exalted above the entire universe. And as one who is so exalted, he thinks of you and I, because we are his body here on earth. And as the ultimately exalted one, he gives grace reflective of his exaltation to you and I. And the purpose is, that we would use these gifts that he's entrusted to us to glorify him as the exalted Messiah. It is not for our own benefit that we might feel purposeful, meaningful in doing whatever it is we do. It is so that the exalted Lord would be seen as exalted in our midst. That's why it's so important to maintain the unity Because it's his body, the exalted Lord. And to the degree to which we exercise our gifts, we are, as it were, proclaiming his exaltation. To the degree to which we are not, we are not proclaiming it as we otherwise could. So what has he given in order to see that he would be exalted in our midst? Look at these gifted ones. I think it's always important to remember they're people. And he talks about apostles and prophets. Apostles, as he said earlier in chapter 2, were the foundation, laid the foundation for the body of Messiah. These are ones who were extremely privileged to see the resurrected Messiah, we're told. One of the criteria to be an apostle was they had to see the resurrected Messiah. As a consequence, the apostles of whom we know manifested signs and wonders, not as evidence of their apostleship, but as a manifestation of it. The prophets were ones who were given divine inspiration from God and revelation directly to them. I do not believe there are apostles and prophets today. I don't care what titles people put after or before their names. Now, it is true that there are people who, like apostles, plant churches, but that's not what Paul is talking about. We have to understand Paul in his context. Paul was an apostle who saw the risen Lord. He was given direct revelation from God, and we have it here in our hands. That is not what goes on today or subsequent to these men's calling. Today, their ministry still 
ministers because we have their words in the word of God. This is the apostolic testimony. This is the prophetic word, not what human beings say or claim to be. These are the men that God built the congregation upon, the foundation of apostles and prophets. That's why the word of God is so critical to us. It is God's word through these gifted men he's given to the body. But in addition to those gifted men upon whom he established the body, he gave evangelists. I think it's interesting that they are the third place here. Evangelists, we know of only one in the scripture, and that's Philip. He had five daughters who were prophetesses, but he was not a prophet. He is referred to as an evangelist. One who proclaims the word of God in such a convincing manner that it results in individuals embracing Messiah. I don't know if you've ever seen individuals like that, experienced individuals like that, but they can be very intimidating because you could say the very same words and for some reason, people don't respond. They say the same words and everybody's saying, I want to come forward. I had opportunity to see that right in action because early in my life, when I was in a a Christian rock band, and our lead guitar player and singer, who is now pastor of a large congregation in New Jersey, had a gift of evangelism. Every time we'd go out and we would play and we would share, and he would share some things, and he would say, if anyone wants to invite the Lord into his life, just raise your hand, I'll pray for you. And it would be like hands would go up. I remember one time he asked me if I would do it this time. I said, sure. (laughs) And I I said the same things. Nobody responded. (laughs) Nobody responded. So I sat down. I was playing drums, so I'm sitting down behind my drums. He gets up there, he shared some things, and the hands go up. (laughs) I remember one individual, I was in New York City. I was on like the eighth, tenth floor in an elevator. Somebody got on the elevator. He starts sharing with the Lord. By the time we got to the first floor, he's asking the Lord into his life. I don't get it. But these are gifts God has given. And when desired to be exercised, not for their own glory, that we would think of them and say, wow, look what you could do. But when we think of what God has just done in manifesting himself, God operates in very powerful, miraculous, supernatural ways like that. Evangelists are like that. All of us are to do the work of an evangelist, whether people respond or not, Paul says to Timothy. But those who are gifted with it, they will see the fruit of those labors in marvelous ways. He then mentions pastors and teachers. I believe this is one gift. I do not believe these are two separate gifts, although there is a gift of teaching spoken of in Corinthians. But here, it's interesting because each one of the gifts begin with the definite article. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors, teachers. There's no and the pastors and the teachers. We would expect that to be the case if they meant to be different gifts. But it appears that pastor teachers are ones that are entrusted with two responsibilities. The shepherding of the flock, and the making understood, to the best of their ability, the meaning of the word of God. So what Paul is thinking about here are not just individuals that help to make the word of God understood. You know, elders, for example, are to be apt to teach. They need not have the gift of teaching or pastoring, but they are to be capable of teaching. In fact, all of us are to be capable of teaching. We should be capable of teaching what Messiah has done for us. We should be capable of explaining his coming into our world and providing us with salvation. We should be capable of such things. But those that are gifted as pastor, I'll say hyphened teachers, are called and gifted to shepherd, nurture the flock, lead the flock. And that necessitates helping to understand what God's word teaches because you cannot lead the flock if you cannot understand God's word and help implement it in people's lives. Now notice all of this is for purposes. 
And Paul comes back to the purpose. And this is where I want to close. Look at verse 13. He says, first of all, the purpose is, and and look at this in verse 12, first of all, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Messiah may be built up. Now, for years, this has been mistranslated. And the mistranslation is the result of a comma in the wrong place. Because in verse 12, it was, it was written to prepare God's people, comma, for the works of service, comma, so that the body of Messiah was built up. And the result was that people understood that those who were called as pastor teachers had the threefold responsibility of number one, equipping or preparing God's people. Number two, they were responsible to do the work of ministry or service. And number three, they were to build up the body of Messiah. The result has been that, this is kind of odd, I don't know how else to say this, but in the world of Christianity, what has emerged is the laity and the clergy. The clergy were responsible to equip the believers, do the work of ministry, and build up the body. The laity were to sit, receive, and to be ministered to. But that's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is, the job of the pastor teachers is to equip the saints, to prepare the body, for the body to do the work of ministry and to build up one another. One comma has sort of set in motion a whole misunderstanding of how the body is to work. My primary responsibility, therefore, is to equip the body. That means the gift of teaching God is entrusted to me needs to be used more and more to help individuals discover their own gifts and to utilize them in the body. That is how the body works. In 1972, Ray Stedman up in Palo Alto, California, wrote a book entitled Body Life. It was revolutionary in the early 70s. In fact, it coined a new expression, body life. And that the life of the body of Messiah is experienced by the body. It isn't paying staff to do the work. It is to equip the whole body with all of their gifts to see that the work God has in the DNA of our local body is lived out. That's what Paul is saying here. That if we're going to grow healthy, we must have each and every one of us exercising our gifts for the benefit of one another. Otherwise, we can't become a healthy body and we can't become healthy individuals. That is the goal, Paul says, to the maturing of the body. That means to say to the, mature, the, the healthiness of the body. So Paul tells us that this preparing of God's people, equipping of the believers for the work of ministry, so that the body, number one, may be built up, And built up for what purpose? Back to what he said, that we would be one, that we would reach unity in the faith. So unity comes by each and every member contributing to the body as a whole with the gifts that we have. That's how we become one. That's how we become united to each other. He goes on to tell us, and it not only results in that, but look at this, and he prayed, this was his prayer earlier. In chapter one, he prayed that we might know him better. Chapter 1, verse 17. Here the result is that we might have the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, there's so many things here to say. I just want to sort of um, sort of get you thinking about this. But this is one of the only times Paul makes reference to Messiah as the Son of God. He rarely refers to him as Son of God, only like five times in his letters. He always speaks of him as Messiah, Yeshua the Messiah. But here he doesn't. 
Here he now speaks of him in perhaps a more glorious title in which he talks about our coming to understand the fullness of the deity of Messiah himself as the son of God. In other words, the way we come to appreciate who Messiah is is through the exercise of our gifts, understanding they've come from the exalted, glorified Messiah. And the more we exercise them, the more we come to understand his glory and his deity and his fullness. And why? Look how he concludes. So that we might become mature. That's what it means to be mature in the Lord. And the knowledge of him is not merely understanding about him, but experiencing him in the fullness of his deity and of his glory. And thus, we would attain the whole measure of the fullness of Messiah. Now, I don't know what Paul means by that. How do you attain the whole measure of the Son of God? In which he says, to the fullness as Messiah. That is ultimately what our goal and intention is to be. That's why God has placed the body of Messiah. That's why he's given us the gifts that he's given us. That we might manifest oneness. That we might better understand, more fully uh, experience, not understand, but fully experience the deity of God in our midst, the deity of Messiah in our midst, and that we might somehow experience the fullness of Messiah dwelling in us, through us, and in our midst. In other words, it's all about Messiah being manifested as fully as he can be through us. And so he ascended on high above the entirety of all the universe as high up as we might think or imagine. And then he gave gifts to us out of his grace that his exaltation would be seen and made manifest. And the way that it is seen is by exercising the gifts that he's given us in the context of the character we are to develop. So we're to exercise our gifts with all humility. We're to exercise our gifts with all gentleness. We're to exercise our gifts, as he says in in chapter 4, with all patience. We're to exercise our gifts by bearing with one another in love. We're to exercise our gifts to maintain, to nurture, to work hard at being the one body the Lord has made us to be. So the question is, where do I fit in this body? What role do I play? What service do I offer? Every one of us has a gift or gifts that are to be used to manifest the exaltation of the Lord, the oneness of of the body, the maturing and growth of the body, and the manifestation of the very glory of God himself dwelling in our midst. I don't think I've thought about the gifts like this before, but it is the way that the Lord shows up in our midst. So how do we discover our gifts? I think it comes first of all by knowing what the gifts are, by looking at God's word. We always come back to the apostles and prophets, their word to us. It comes by prayer and reflection on what, how has God crafted me, my DNA, as it were. It comes by interacting with the body as individuals reflect on how you have impacted on another, how I have impacted on another. It comes through some kind of experimentation where we get involved in serving and see how God shows up in our serving of one another. And in that context, we'll discover what those gifts are that God has for us. And in doing that, we will see the Lord in his glory in a way that perhaps we've never seen before. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. 
Our Savior and Messiah has ascended on high above the heavens. And having ascended and vanquished the enemy and provided salvation and strength and power, as Psalm 68 concludes, he's granted us strength and power. That strength and power is exhibited through the gifts and gifted ones that he has provided for each and every one of us. All of us are extremely important and valuable to the working of the body. We may not be as equally visible, but we are equally valuable to one another. And so help us grow as a body together, Lord. Help us to feast on your word and understand it as fully as we can. Help us, Lord, to exercise our gifts in order to grow stronger and stronger. Help us to rest when it is necessary, that we will be ready for that time when we need to use our gifts more fully. Help us here at Beth Ariel as we go through this transition of a different worship day. And Lord, I particularly am impressed with what you are going to do as we make this transition. I'm looking forward, Lord, to your blessings being poured out upon us and the new and different kinds of opportunities we will have. As we anticipate where our ministry is headed, Father, help us not to treat lightly the fact that you have given gifts to us. Help us, Lord, to discover them. Help us, Father, to be faithful in utilizing them. And help us, Father, to be determined to exalt you in our midst through them. We pray in Messiah's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.